Hey guys, welcome to the Tales of Moxie podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Lee, and I'm so glad that you're here. I created this podcast with the simple desire of wanting women to have a place to share their stories. Our stories are so powerful, and God's fingerprints are evident throughout them all. So each week, I sit down with another woman who is brave enough to share her story with us. We talk all the things with no judgment. While each story is unique to the person telling it, I find that I see myself in all of them, and I'm sure that you will too. Welcome back to Tales of Moxie Season 2. This week, I got to have a co-host come on that is a dear friend of mine. You guys have heard her before in Season 1. Carolyn, welcome back. Hi, thank you. I was so excited to join you, um, especially for this specific conversation, because we get to interview Shannon Martin. Um, she's a an author of two books. Her first one was Falling Free. The second one, most recent, is called The Ministry of Ordinary Places. Um, but I have loved and followed Shannon in for almost a decade now so it was really a joy to get to talk with her and she was so fun she talked with us for about an hour mm-hmm. about all the things we talked about what it looks like to love your neighbor about adoption um redefining success and of course we talked about the enneagram <laughs> a little bit too of course <laughs> um but we think this was a really fun and neat episode for us to do so we hope that you guys enjoy as you settle in and listen Right. Well, hi, Shannon. Welcome to the Tales of Moxie podcast. We are so excited to have you on. Hey, I'm so happy to be here with you today. Thank you. Thank you. For those of our listeners that are not acquainted with Shannon, Shannon is the author of Falling Free in the Ministry of Ordinary Places. And if you don't mind, Shannon, just kind of telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe what prompted you to to start sharing your story and then prompted you to write the Ministry of Ordinary Places. Yeah. So my husband, Corey, and I have been married for almost 20 years. And so we met in college. Um, We have four kiddos and all of our kids came to us through adoption. Um, And each of our kids has a pretty unique story. I mean, I think every, every kid does and every kiddo who was adopted has a very special and unique story. But our two youngest boys were adopted from South Korea. And then Ruby, our daughter, was adopted domestically, and we have an open adoption with her birth mom. And then our oldest son, Robert, actually came to us most recently, and he is almost 25. So we adopted him when he was 19 years old. And interestingly with him, he was actually in jail when he officially became part of our family. And so a lot of our journey with Robert has been you know, just kind of navigating through the criminal justice system. And so that's something we can talk about maybe later on in the show. Um, But yeah, you know, families are built in very unique and sometimes mysterious ways. Um, And so Robert is out on his own now, but our, our three youngest kiddos, and they are 13, 12, and 10. So not super little at this point. Um, We live in a small city called Goshen, Indiana. It's way up north near Michigan. And we moved here six years ago. Um, And we actually moved from a very rural setting. So we used to live in what we thought was like our dream farmhouse and everything was lovely. And, you know, we had six acres and we were out in the middle of nowhere. And so we ended up moving to Goshen. It It wasn't a big move in terms of distance. We didn't move that far. We moved maybe 20 or 25 minutes away. Um, but a very different context. So we moved from, you know, being out in the country to a very ordinary, kind of shabby, lower income neighborhood here in the city. And, you know, that is, that's what, in addition to just, I think our kids and what we've learned through living life through their eyes, um, as the parents of kids who none of, none of our kids are white. And, you know, my husband and I are white. So just, seeing seeing the world that they are in and the world that they are up against in many ways through their eyes was tremendously impactful to us um, and will continue to be, of course. We've got amazing kids and kids always change their parents' lives in one way or the other. Um, but aside from that, I would say that our neighbors and the people we have connected with in, in what is now you know, our home and our city have just absolutely 
changed our life in such and changed our worldview in such meaningful ways. That's really what I think led me to start writing about the things that I write about was just the people that I get to spend my life with. Mm. So what kind of prompted um, that move from the farm and being, yeah. you know, on the farm girl and the, the different life that you guys had to now yeah. being in the inner city and, and getting, like you said, to where now you're adopting someone that was in jail and like, how, right. what was that? How does that happen? That? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, first I want to clarify, we are not in inner city, um, but I, you know, we're just in average city. A lot of people even see Goshen as like a small town, mm -hmm. but when you move from, you know, the community that we moved out of, which was a very tiny, more of like a village, and we lived out in the country outside of that village, you know, it's all about perspective. Um, so very, very different. And in so many ways, it felt like, you know, moving much further than we actually moved. Um, it was a big move for our hearts and for our lives. But yeah, we're just, we're in a very, very ordinary neighborhood. And I share pictures of my neighborhood constantly on social media. So find me on Instagram if you're curious. But, you know, I always want to kind of clarify that it's not, you know, I'm not in inner city Chicago or Detroit or somewhere like that. Um, just a cute little overgrown neighborhood. Um, we moved initially from our farm. I'm trying to think of the best way to make this story somewhat concise. Mm -hmm. um, and you can find all of the backstory in my first book, yeah. which was titled Falling Free. So that really tells the story of how we got from there to here. But to summarize it as, you know, as quickly as possible, we became aware really after, after both of us being raised in the church our entire lives and very involved in the church our entire lives, we became aware for maybe the first time that we were missing key segments of the gospel. And specifically, we were missing out on loving and being loved by people at the margins. Um, you know, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the hated, the oppressed. We started to to feel those, those segments of scripture, which is just so much of, of scripture and so much of the gospel, we started to really feel those things that we had missed and, and to contend with the fact that we did not, we didn't even know the poor. Not only were we not really loving them, we did not know them. Um, and so that journey really is what over time, and it felt like it took a lot of time. It didn't happen overnight. Um, that's what led us to just this nearby city, you know, to just have the opportunity to live in a context where we were going to come into contact with people at the margins and just people who lived differently than we did, people who did not look and live and believe and vote and worship exactly as we did, which is really where we had come from. You know, we both came from and really up into our mid 30s lived in places where everybody around us was very similar to us in almost every way. And, and that's different now. That's, we, we experience life in a different way here in our neighborhood. Wow. Um, I, one of your favorite chapters in the book, you talk about um, the least of these and kind of that phrase and how a lot yeah. of people that do um, a similar thing to what you and Corey did moving into this neighborhood um, mm -hmm. They do it with the idea that they're going to come save these people, that these people, right. whoever they are, they need us and they needed to be saved by us. Um, yeah. I love that you kind of talk against that in a way in your book. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on what that's like. Yeah. I mean, I'm writing to myself, mm. you know, 10, 20 years ago, I have been that person who sort of believed that if a person was poor, they probably needed Jesus. Mm. Um, I've been, you know, I was that, that do-gooder, go-getter youth group girl who, who did that going door-to-door -door thing to, to sh you know, quote, share the gospel. And I don't, I want to be careful. I don't, my intentions were only good in doing that. Mm -hmm. But now with the advantage of hindsight, I see 
the way we always did end up in the lower income neighborhoods. We weren't showing up knocking on the doors of the gated communities in the suburbs. And, you know, we weren't driving for miles out in the, in the country, you know, knocking on the doors of farmers. I mean, we were very often targeting a certain, a certain neighborhood and even a certain person. And so now that I live in that neighborhood, I see it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, that's what has kind of helped snap that into clarity for me. I think I, I struggle with the phrase, the least of these, mm -hmm. um, because I, and I've, I've struggled with that for a long time because, you know, I think if we don't in some ways see ourselves as the least of these and the biggest problem, <laughs> you know, um, then, then that's an unfair perspective to operate from. I also understand that these are the words of Jesus. You know, we didn't, that phrase was not, was not made up. I, I do think though, that it has been kind of co-opted mm -hmm. in ways that are not, that are not loving and beneficial and gracious to people who have lived really hard lives. Um, so I think we need to always resist the urge to categorize people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I grew up, I grew up in a loving, wonderful home and just, I, I have nothing bad to say about my childhood. And so I don't think that this was overtly taught to me, but I do think that I ended up with a, with a framework for understanding the world that there were good people and there were bad people. And I was one of the good ones. You know, and so now I just, I see that really differently. I think we're all, we're all the good people and we're all sort of the worst, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so coming, you know, being around people who allow, who allow me to see life from a different vantage point have helped me see myself from a different vantage point in a lot of ways. And that's been, that's been a really, that's been a necessary thing for me. Um, and the chapter that you referenced, I think I, I should know exactly the title. I'll, I'll sneak a peek just so I get it exactly right because um, it's a longer title. Let's stop loving on the least of these yeah. because I also have kind of a beef with loving on that mm -hmm. phrase. It really troubles me. And I know that it's in some ways it's just a personal thing, but I, you know, I just think there's a difference between loving someone and loving on someone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to kind of mash these two things together that kind of make me crazy about our churchy lingo that we use. I mean, what if we were just neighbors? What if we just looked at each other as neighbors instead of the least of these who we needed to love on? Like that's mm -hmm. super weird. We can just yeah. be normal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> can we? Yeah. I love that. I love how you even said at one point, like you didn't come in wanting to be like the white knight to save them, but you found that they saved you in different ways right. because that For is sure. not, that's not how I always think about it. It's in any ministry, not even like, you know, going on missions, anything like that, just any sort of ministry. I'm, I'm not looking for them to teach me anything. And so reading your perspective on that was so yeah. helpful to be like, okay, no, wait a minute. What can they teach me? Because we're all, I can learn something about God and his character from everyone that I meet. Yes. Right. And I yeah. don't, I don't always go into it that way. So I really appreciated right. that perspective on that of, of finding yeah. like, no, what can they teach me and how can they yes. save me in that moment? Well, yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I appreciate knowing that that, that kind of connected with you because I, I think when we live outside, when we force ourselves out of the comfort of, you know, what is known to us out of the comfort of certainty, out of the comfort of believing that we've got the answers and we're living life the right way. When we can force ourselves out of that bubble or out of that echo chamber. Um, and, and I don't, I don't mean necessarily that everybody needs to move, you know, to sell their house and move. That's what it took for us, but we're a bit hard headed. So I think <laughs> other people can, can find different ways to do that. I just think being around people who we might initially think of as being different than us. Mm -hmm. um, man, it's so, it's so good. It gives us such a different perspective on ourselves. And it does give us such a different and more, you know, richer and broader and truer vision of, of the kingdom of God in the image of God. It just, it gives us 
depth and complexity to that that is so necessary. You know, so many things that I missed out on when when I just lived my life with people who were just like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you're in that, once you have that opportunity to interact in that way, there's just, there's no way around it. It's going to change you. You know, it's yeah. going to change who you are and how you see the world. I just, I don't, I can't imagine how it wouldn't. And so that's, that's one of the things that can be a struggle for me now because it's, you know, when you interact with people who have lived their whole lives in under a bubble of some kind where they're just really not, it might be a really beautiful bubble, but they're not really forced to contend with, with people who see things differently. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to understand how growth, you know, or change can come because I, I just see that in myself, I am a living example that people, you know, people can change. People can kind of change their minds. People can come to a place where they say, I've gotten some things wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, in so many ways, our lives changed when, when we started to, to really live life with the people around us. So I, I'm wondering, um, if this is an okay question to ask now that you are there in the city and you know, you've surrounded yourself with people like this, do you find that you have to apply the same neighbor strategy that you did at the beginning to the people maybe on the farms and now in the lifestyle that you used to live? Yeah. Well, I didn't have a neighbor strategy when I lived on the farm. And so that's, (laughs) and I wouldn't say that I have a neighbor strategy now, but I, you know, when I lived on the farm, and I would, I would kind of categorize like my whole life up to Goshen as on the farm. You know, I didn't live in that house for all of those decades, but my life before, um, I think I would have said, you know, I was familiar. I knew that, that Jesus told us to love our neighbors. I knew that that was, that was not a surprise or a mystery to me, but I think I, I would have, I mean, I didn't give it a lot of thought period. If I did give it thought, I would have told myself, well, you don't hate your neighbors, so you love them. Mm-hmm. There, you're good to go. If, you know, if I'm not hating somebody, if I'm not being mean to somebody, then I love them. So everything's taken care of. I see that really differently now. Um, I see, you know, in large part, our neighbors on the farm were not people that we, we didn't, I didn't even know their names. I didn't know who they were. Um, a lot of them, we just were not very intentional. We just did not live intentionally. We spent our lives centered around, you know, our family, which would have meant the five of us or the four of us, however many kids we had at that time. Like that's what we were really protective of. And that's what we believed was like the point. Um, And then beyond that, like if we spent time, beyond, you know, our little family unit, it was with extended family or people from church. And those are wonderful things. They, they certainly add value and beauty to our lives, but I think we're just missing out when, when the circle ends there, you know? So I, I'm such a big fan of, of making that circle wider and being a a bit looser with who we even consider our family. Because I don't think, I don't think Jesus, I don't think God meant us to define family just according to biology or, you know, just according to last name. I think we're, we're missing out when we define these things too narrowly. So we just, you know, here at the point that we got here to our neighborhood, we just started to, to take that wider view. We started to be very intentional about just getting to know in very normal, ordinary ways that sometimes just take a lot of time, you know, to build these relationships, knowing that, you know, these are the people closest to us for a reason, and we have things to learn from them, and they will add value and richness to our lives. I mean, but, but it's work. You know, we talk about building relationships. That implies that it's going to be hard work. It's not going to be easy. It might be uncomfortable and awkward. It's going to take a lot of intentionality. And so that's where I would say I see that the biggest change in how I even think about neighbors. 
And I know one of my, your favorite things that um, I've heard for years that you talk about is the, the ministry of paying attention and mm-hmm. simply taking the time to actually notice because we can't really love our neighbors if yeah. we're not really seeing them. That's um, it. And that, that reminder yep. has been so helpful to me to just slow down and stop and yeah. notice who even my neighbor is. Cause I, I think for right. a, a lot of years, you know, you were saying you felt like you were meeting that box of loving your neighbor because you weren't hating them. And I thought I was <laughs> checking that box because I was picking who my neighbor was and I was loving those right. people really well. Yeah. And That's the rest so I true. didn't have to pay attention to. Yeah. So once you start really seeing and paying attention to the people around you, um, you see so many more of the needs that are there. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. sometimes that feels overwhelming. And so I think that's what I really would love to know is once you, once you started seeing all of those needs um, and your eyes were open to that, um, how do you deal with that feeling of being overwhelmed by it, of just wanting to help it all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you said it really well a minute ago that, it, that we, have to, we have to be willing and we have to be intentional about seeing our place and the people around us. And so for us, it be, for me specifically, it really started to take root in me when I got very in, intentional about seeing my neighborhood, like in the most literal way, like looking at the trees, noticing the houses, taking more walks, being very intentional to find something that I could see as beautiful every day. Because we can't love what we don't know and we can't know what we don't see. And so when we start with just our physical place, what I found was the more I started to, to notice my place, the more I found it beautiful. And the more I found my place beautiful, the more I found the people around me is beautiful. I mean, this is what, this is what made me fall in love with this, this neighborhood that anybody else would be like, what, you know, why it's just nothing special with, from the outside perspective. But I think there's something to, to, to understanding. And especially because we live, we live in a lower income neighborhood that this is true. My husband is the chaplain of our County jail. And so, so many of the people in our lives come from a background, including our son, Robert, and you know, a lot of his friends and his circle, they come out of extreme generational poverty. They come out of a history of addiction. In some cases, they come out of a history of um, untreated mental illness. You know, there, there are all of these layers of need. And so because this is, this is where and how we live, we do see a lot of need. I think the thing that, that keeps me from being overwhelmed is really knowing for sure that I cannot fix any of these problems. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had any illusions coming into this, and I don't, I don't even necessarily think I did because a lot of this happened, this didn't happen all in one lump sum. You know, it wasn't like, you know, for us, it happened slowly. We moved to the neighborhood, not exactly sure why we were here. We knew we were here. And then we adopted Robert. And then Corey became the chaplain of the jail. And then, you know, now we're six years in. And so these relationships and this experience gets richer and deeper as we go. Um, so I don't think I quite knew what the need would even look like or the extent of the need when we first got here. It's been sort of revealed over time. But I can tell you, if I had the solution to meth addiction, meth addiction would not exist, right? Mm-hmm. I, I cannot solve that problem. And so there, there are so many of these bigger needs that there's just no way around it. Like there's nothing I can do. The only thing I can do is just love you and be your friend and be in it with you. And when you leave, when you disappear for whatever reason, we can worry about you and wonder about you and pray for you. And we can still be right here when you come back. You know, that's what we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are smaller needs that you know like giving people rides a lot of the people in our community don't drive for various reasons so that's a lot of what i feel like i do because i work from home and i have you know a lot of flexibility more than most people i end up driving people around that's a pretty simple thing to do and that doesn't feel taxing when i can't do it i say no and saying no to my neighbors 
and them saying no to me, like that builds trust in a relationship that makes you actual friends mm -hmm. rather than I'm the person that you come to when you need something, you know, rather than having this, this strange, like I'm the one who's giving and you're the one always receiving. I mean, at the point that we say, yeah, I can't do it. And sometimes there are times I'll be super honest. There are times when I say like, I have plans. I can't do it today. And my plan is to sit on my couch in my socks and, and keep reading. That's my plan. But I have a plan today and I can't give you a ride today. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You know, this is what makes relationships real and true. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. I do that all too often of thinking, okay, I can't say no. Cause I, you know, yeah. I want to be loving and I want to be a neighbor and be someone that they can depend yeah. on. But I, I really appreciate that point of no, that's what builds the relationship because yeah. I wouldn't want someone to be doing that to with me all the time. Right. Either. So that, right. that's a really good point. That's and we, we would want, I, I think that's, you know, you, you raise an interesting point. It's, it's really helpful to always think about what, how we would feel if the situation were reversed. Mm -hmm. I don't want anybody helping me if they're kind of bitter and cranky about it. Yeah. <laughs> if they are annoyed that I asked, and they believe that they could not have told me no, I, that's not help that I want. Exactly. That's super, that makes me uncomfortable even just talking about it. I can deal with somebody saying, yeah, sorry, I can't help today. I can, I can find other help. And what Corey and I have found is that, you know, there are a lot of these like emergencies, air quotes <laughs> that happen <laughs> around us. Um, and when we say no, the, the emergency is always attended to by somebody else. You know, like if it's a real emergency, that's a whole different story. But, but when we say no, they always figure it out. Yeah. Just like when other people say no to me, you know, I always figure something out. This is just what we do. And we're capable. We're smart people. My neighbors are just smart and resourceful and inventive people. And it's, it's okay. <laughs> Definitely. Well, if I can pull us in a little bit different direction, I would love to talk a little bit more about adoption. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. something you're very familiar with, um, and I've actually given your book uh, to a few people, but one was a friend who recently, they adopted their third child. They had adopted two boys from Korea, which I know is familiar okay. to you, yeah. and they were adopting a, a daughter through the foster system here um, in California. And so I gave her your book because I said, you guys have actually have a lot in common, so <laughs> you might want to read this. Oh, thanks. Um, but I was struck because I actually got to be there for that third adoption, be in the courthouse when it was finalized and all of that. Yeah. And, it, and it was an amazing moment. And yet I was struck by the fact that I think a lot of people see that as the happily ever after. That this right. five-year-old girl has now found her forever home and it's a safe family. And so she's going to be fine yeah. and everything's going to be great from here on yeah. out. Um, and yet that's not the reality of adoption. That adoption involves so much loss and pain. And I know that you have talked a little bit about that, of what that's like to step into that. I think it's, it's a really sensitive thing to talk about. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people don't. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always afraid of doing it wrong and share, you know, <laughs> sharing too much. I mean, these are, these are my kids and they're little right now, but they're always getting bigger and this is their story. And, you know, I want to tend that really carefully. Mm -hmm. And so those are conversations we have. And quite honestly, you know, I don't, as they get older, I do share less and I involve them more in what I share. Um, I think all of this is true, but my kids know. My kids are also, they are smart and savvy kids who they are doing the hard work right now of working through this loss and this grief and this trauma in some, in some cases. And they understand the value of sharing with sensitivity some of this. Um, I think back to my husband and I lived in Washington, DC. I mean, this has been, this was years ago. This is before we had kids and, and we were only there for about a year, but I, there was a coworker of mine. I, in this moment, I don't even remember his name, <laughs> but he and his wife adopted a little girl while I was, you know, while we were coworkers in the same office. And I remember when he returned from work, I think he, you know, they adopted this, this infant, at, you know, sort of at the hospital in an open adoption of some kind. And then he, when he came back to work, I was like, I knew very little about adoption. I could not have imagined that I would end up adopting myself. But I remember saying like, 
you know, I was just starry eyed and smiling and I wanted to hear all about it. And I was so happy for him and he was thrilled to be a dad. But he said to me, it was the absolute saddest day of my life. Mm. And I remember sitting there thinking, what, how in the world could that be? And we were not close friends, hence I cannot remember his name now, but you know, at the time he shared with me uh, just a little bit about what it was like to be in the room with a birth mom who was grieving mm. and what it was like to have, I mean, he, he painted enough of a picture that I remember thinking, I have never thought of it like this before ever. Hmm. And, and so now that I am an adoptive mom multiple times over, I think it's so important for us to talk about the reality of adoption, that it's wonder. I mean, you know, I, I, my kids and I tell them like Calvin is the, he's 13 now, but he was the first child that we adopted. And I tell him sometimes like, you made me a mom, like hmm. he made me a mom, but it came at a tremendous loss to him. And so I, I just, I want to be so careful to hold that tension to be able to, you know, I remember early, early in Ruby's life, my daughter, when we would meet up with her birth mom now and then, and I remember feeling like, I don't want to be too happy about Ruby in front of her. Cause what if that hurts her feelings? But, but then what if I'm not happy enough? And she thinks that I don't love Ruby. Like it was the most uncomfortable dynamic mm. and she's still a part of our life. And we've, you know, it's uncomfortable for her too. Like we've just worked through this stuff as we've gone along. Ruby's 12 now. Um, there's just so much complexity. And I think it's unfair for our kids who have given things up with without really having any say in in the matter um it's unfair it's asking too much that we that we make this a story with only a happy ending it's asking too much of them for that to be the 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 narrative mm -hmm. so you know we have a lot of hard conversations at my house i mean they 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 don't happen constantly but they happen regularly and especially as our kids get older and you know they understand more um, one of the things that I, I decided early on, and I don't know what helped me come to this place, but I'm really grateful is, is forever giving my kids the message that they did not have to choose between me and their birth mom or their birth parents or their foster mom. You know, some of them feel a great attachment to the foster moms that cared for them in the interim. They don't ever have to choose. So so my, their love for me can be right here and their love for her can be right here and they both can exist. Mm. They can exist equally. They can exist even independently so that they can feel free to talk about that loss and they can feel free to talk about what they miss. Um, and they can feel free to talk about what they wish. Mm. And that does not diminish their love for me. And that their love for me in our everyday ordinary life does not diminish the love that they have for their first family. Yeah, and thank you for, for talking about adoption, for being willing to have that kind of hard conversation because we do want it to be the happy ever after. We want it to be, hey, we were commanded to take care of orphans and so yeah. you know, we're right. doing it and yay for us <laughs> instead. Yeah, no, that's, that's hard work, yeah, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, parenting just is in general. Sure. This is, you know, these are just, it's a, it's a helpless, it's a helpless feeling to, to, to sit next to that pain. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, these are, again, these are problems that, that I can't fix. This is pain that I cannot heal. This is God's work. And so we just, you know, we continue to hold on to that and just hold on <laughs> for dear life as we, as we go through it. Yeah. And being willing to walk into someone else's pain with them, whether that's adoption or your neighbor or, mm -hmm. you know, any other family member yeah. or friend, um, mm -hmm. that I feel like is, is huge and rare, <laughs> honestly. It, I, you know, I just, I was talking about this last night. I think our adoption, Calvin was an infant. Ruby was a newborn. And then we brought Silas home. He was our third adoption. He was 18 months old. And so now I see 18 month olds and I'm like, they're tiny babies. But at the time we were like, he's grown. He's pretty much grown. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, it was such a different experience, but, but his, the fact that he was older and more articulate and more aware made his grief. I mean, it just rattled our lives from the foundation. And that was the, that was the moment that for maybe the first time with a lot of intention or awareness, we knew, I mean, we loved him immediately. Um, and I, and that's not always the case with adoption. And I'm just going to put that out there like that mm -hmm. instant with, you know, there was just this, like, you know, I just remember feeling sort of overwhelmed with love for this really tricky and, and difficult in some ways because he was grieving so much kid. Um, but you know, we were his family and the only option was to just walk straight into his pain and to sit there for a very long time mm -hmm. and to feel like, you know, the world or the, the world around us was kind of crumbling to pieces because we could not, we couldn't find our way through. Um, it was lonely. It was terrifying in some ways. I mean, it was just heartbreaking, but it taught us so much mm -hmm. about what it means to choose somebody's pain for yourself, because I think, you know, it's so natural for us to just be afraid of suffering and be afraid of pain to feel like it's just so awkward. We don't know what to say. You know, again, I think our intentions are not bad, but man, we just don't want to be uncomfortable mm -hmm. and we don't want to make things worse mm -hmm. for the person who's suffering. So we just keep a distance. Um, so I think Silas helped teach us that. And again, I didn't know how useful those skills were going to be for us moving forward where now you know that's a choice that we get to make all the time is to say i see your pain and i cannot fix it but i can walk into it with you and i can sit with you in it i mean that's that's something that we can do and it's something that you just get more comfortable with over time <laughs> i love the fact that you say it's a choice because i feel like also as the person in the pain when someone makes that choice to sit in it with you and not fix it like you're saying yeah. it gives me permission to sit in it and permission to say it's okay if this is not okay right like right. my my hardest struggle is we live in a world where you know you're supposed to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you're supposed to get on yeah. with it instant gratification instant satisfaction you know social media everything's right now and right. that's not how healing happens. Healing doesn't happen no. in an instant, but we get so caught up in the fact of that's how everything else in our world happens. This is how this should happen too. Right. So you making that choice gives me as the person that's feeling the pain permission to say that's okay. And I, I yeah. we all need that, right? Like I've been in those moments where it's, I, I need to know that it's okay if this takes a really long time yeah. to heal. Cause I, right. and it doesn't mean that I don't love Jesus or I don't know God right. or you, you don't know? trust him. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's just a matter of, this is the process that I have to go through and this is the pain that I have yep. to sit in. And I, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Yep. I have a question. Um, and you said you didn't take it off. I'm going to take it off a little bit different. Cause this, this part of your book really hit home to me. I told her mm -hmm. I highlighted and underlined like every single section of it, but the redefining <laughs> success. I feel yeah. like that topic is hardly ever talked about in the light that I have heard. If ever, I don't know if I've ever heard it in the light that you wrote about it, yeah. especially in my generation, it's always go, 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 accomplish more, accomplish more. And if you're yeah. not accomplishing or achieving, then you're not successful. So would you mind just kind of briefly talking about like what prompted that kind of oh, success? Yeah. yeah. Thoughts for you? I'd love to. I think that's a conversation that was born out of Corey's, at least initially, it was born out of Corey's work in the jail. And so, you know, he's the full-time chaplain there. That's his job. That's where he goes to jail every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I think one of the things, you know, and his ministry is funded exclusively through, you know, people in our community and churches in our community. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was raised to him often was, well, you know, we believe in this work and we think it's good work. And I mean, we just, we have, we honestly have tremendous and amazing support, but now and then people would say, but tell me about the recidivism rate, which means when somebody comes to jail and then, you know, then they meet the jail ministry and, you know, their lives are transformed. You know, we love to talk about how alive God is inside jail once that happens and then they're released, do they come back to jail? Mm. And the answer is, yeah. 
they often come back to jail and then they do the whole thing again and then they come back to jail and then you do the whole thing again. And so it would be easy to look at that and think like, well, you know, this is all good. It's all great that you're, you know, building relationships and sharing the love of Christ and sharing um, God's goodness with these men and women. But it, it, you know, is it really helping? Is it, are you really finding success if they're, if they're just going to go back out and use drugs again and come back to jail? So it can get easy. It can be easy to get, to get trapped in this, in this false, um, narrative of, you know, success has to look like this particular outcome. So unless recidivism rates are dropping, then that's not success, you know, where, and so a lot of this, I kind of, I've learned from Corey along the way is that he started to just really see this differently and started to reframe this with his assistant chaplains and volunteers and, you know, churches that he speaks to. Success is not about a certain outcome it is about our faithfulness. That is the beginning and the end of success. And, you know, God has his relationship with this person or that person. And, you know, what success looks like to them, you know, that's something that, that God is working through with them. But, you know, even, even in, in that case, like success is about their faithfulness. You know, like if we can start to, instead of attaching a particular outcome and, and I remember Corey telling me, you know, at the point that, that we're, we're only successful if we're seeing a particular outcome, we will start intentionally or otherwise seeking people who might lend themselves to a certain outcome. That's a good and then we're, just, then we're just missing out. Mm-hmm. Then we're just, you know, we've got the tail kind of wagging the dog. Um, and that changes the approach the world where if we, if we see success as, you know, am I staying faithful? Am I enduring in this work? When so-and-so comes back to jail for the third or the fourth or the fifth time, will I still be here waiting with open arms, you know, welcoming them back in, giving them a hug, praying with them and just, you know, here we are again. Let's, let's just pick up where we left off. Like that can be and should be what success looks like. So even in our neighborhood, I mean, we have so many people who come and go. I mean, we have so many rentals here. People are constantly moving in and out. Um, so many of our friends are trapped in a cycle of addiction that they cannot quite break. And so people disappear. And that's one of the things that is important to us is that for us, our success is the faithfulness to just stay the course And it's, you know, it looks like when that person comes back around and they usually do, they know where to find us and we're still here and they're still welcome at our table. You know, that is what, that is how we can choose to define success. Hmm. I love that because I think of how many times I've been told that, you know, Jesus wasn't about the issue. He was about the heart behind the issue. And that's, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm connecting listening to that is like the success is the heart behind the issue rather than the issue. Right. And, and that's so helpful because we don't, we don't think like that. And even I was list, as I'm listening to that and I'm thinking about, you know, the people that are stuck in addiction. I just recently um, read a book by David B. Hampton. He was talking about sobriety because he had, you know, gone through addiction and, and all of that. And I connected, I have not personally been through an addiction like that, but he said mm-hmm. like sobriety is not just not drinking again. Sobriety is, am I going to get well? It's, do I live knowing that I'm not in responsibility of my own, you know, what I can take responsibility of or what I can't. And am I connected with God in a manner of um, making space for him in my life and knowing what I'm using to numb myself or not. And I thought so much on that of like, wow, am I living sober? Like, is right. Is that something like I might not be addicted, but but I am to other things. What, what, am, what do I need sobriety from? And what do I need yeah. sobriety to? And even listening to you talk about that, I was thinking like, isn't that interesting how it's easy to think like that's not success because, you know, the mm-hmm. kid stuck in addiction or where are we in that addiction, you know, helping. But we're so, along with your, you know, we're all neighbors. We're so alike yeah. in so many ways and sobriety. Yeah. So we all need it. And I just, I find that fascinating that it's a manner of like what you're saying, the success in that is so, it's so different. Just kind of taught. 
Right. Yeah. It's just, you know, I think it's more of that posture of the heart that you're talking about. Um, it makes me think of, there's a book written by Seth Haynes and the book is called Coming Clean. And so he writes about his, you know, his addictions with alcohol. But one of the things that he talks about a lot is we are all addicted to something. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. And I think when we can, when we can remember that and keep the focus on, you know, the areas that we need healing, that makes it much healthier in our, you know, makes us healthier in our interactions with people who have sort of the classic, you know, drug or alcohol or whatever addictions. When we can, when we can start to identify the areas where this is a struggle in us, whether it's social media mm -hmm. or, um, you know, I see a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of moms who, talk about their, in, in kind of a funny way, but like their reliance on, you know, their glass of wine at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I just think, man, you know, we live surrounded with people who might have addictions to meth and are very harshly judged by society. And I don't know that that, that, that wine thing is so far away. Mm -hmm. And I don't honestly know that my inability to sit at a red light without opening up my Instagram app, you know, just because I have one second where I'm not focused on something else, that impulse to just reach for that phone or to turn on the TV or, you know, whatever it is. I don't know that these things are so different, yeah. but yet we judge some so unfairly and, you know, really villainize those people and our addictions, we'd rather not talk about them, right? Yeah. They're different. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the hard work of actually accepting and realizing that, reflecting enough to notice that, okay, maybe there is an area in my life that is yeah. out of control in a different way. It just doesn't look as obvious as someone else's. And won't right. that give us the moment to be able to step back and be like, okay, no, I need you just as much as you need me. <laughs> Which yeah, right. Helpful. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So one other thing that we love to talk about around here is the Enneagram. Ooh. <laughs> I've heard you mention the Enneagram a few times. Let's talk about it. I love it. Nice. I'm a five. Jenna Lee is a six. And we've heard rumor okay. that you are an eight. I'm an eight. You're an eight. <laughs> and we actually have a pastor. He wrote a book actually about the Enneagram um, and kind of how it relates to our gospel identity. But, um, but he is fond of saying that um, being an eight and a woman is, it's the hardest number in our society. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering your thoughts on that, obviously living the life of an eight, if you ever feel that tension. It, in this moment, it makes me curious to know if there is a female eight that would be like, yeah, it's really hard. Like, I just feel <laughs> like it's not hard. <laughs> it's hard. Well, I feel like that kind of lines up with, with being, right. right? I wonder if, right. um, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it, what number is your pastor? He's an eight. He's an eight. <laughs> He's an eight. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel like it's hard. I feel like it's kind of amazing to me, an eight. but I also feel like I just had a conversation this morning with a friend of mine over Voxer. So we don't live near each other. We don't talk that often, but she said, you're an eight. Like, I am so surprised. I do not see you as an eight. And I was telling her as, as more people become aware of Enneagram, I used to, it used to drive me crazy, you know, two or three years ago when I would say I was an eight. And that's what I got across the board was like, you're not an eight. You're not an eight. And that made me crazy because do not tell an eight that they're getting it wrong. <laughs> Don't do it. But now I get more and more of like, oh yeah, I can see that. And now I'm like, I don't know if I like that either because I feel like there's so much toxicity around eights that I'm not quite sure if I want people to be like, oh, you're not an eight. Or if I'd rather than be like, oh yeah, you're an eight. You know, <laughs> there's, there are always, and, and you know, as we worked through that conversation, she said basically that probably a lot of the eights in her life are pretty unhealthy. And so that, that has kind of skewed her yeah. perception of what eights are. So, you know, some people are like, oh, you're, but you're a nice person. You can't be an eight. And that <laughs> is not the story of an Enneagram eight. There is work to be done here. <laughs> so true. I agree. Yeah. I, you know, I'm so, I'm driven. I'm driven by, here's, here's my best Enneagram eight encapsulation. 
I was on a podcast months ago and she, it, it, you know, she was a really fun, lighthearted, funny podcaster. And so she asked these certain questions. And one of her questions was like, what is something that you can't stop talking about lately? Mm. And I was like, injustice, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) And as the words popped out of my mouth, I was like, oh, that is just not at all what she was looking for. (laughs) She wanted, she was going in a way different direction, but that's the only thing I could think about. Like, that's the stuff that I, that I get stuck on and cannot stop talking about. So then I talked to Corey, my husband about it later. Because I thought the whole thing was so funny. And when I said the question, he said the same answer for me. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, yeah, you talk about whatever, like any oppression that you're seeing, like that's the thing that you get stuck on. So, yeah, that's my, that's my eightness. I could talk about Enneagram stuff forever. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. And I love that. I've known, like we said, we've known our pastor who's an eight for a long time. And we've seen so many different sides of it. But we, we know very few, or I know very few women who are eight. So it's, it is, yeah. it is neat, but I can see, I, we talked about how, when we read your book, we were like, Oh, we totally saw that because of the injustice piece. Right. Yeah. We were like like the, the underdog, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody, I, I mean, I feel like, I feel like eights are kind of coming out of the woodwork and I feel like I'm really drawn to Enneagram eights personally. So even in my personal life, like I would say two of my closest friends who I didn't even know, one of them I just met a year ago. Um, and another one is Becca, who I wrote about in the first chapter of this book. She's my friend who's older, like in her late 60s. And I I believe that both of them are Enneagram 8s. Mm. And, and they don't, you know, so I'm always like trying to talk them into like getting excited about this so we can figure it out for sure and talk about it. And, but I, but it's interesting to think about the fact that I, I do think I'm drawn to that in other women. So I feel like, I feel like we're everywhere, (laughs) but I, but I don't think we really are. I think it is, it is a bit harder probably to, to operate or to even own it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I was going to say, that's one of the things I think he, he meant when he said it was harder to be a woman and be an eight, where men, it's, it's easy to be like more of a strong leader and I'm going to go and fight for injustice and things like that. Just, it's almost more expected of. Um, and he yeah. has said like with women that he's worked with in the Enneagram eight, he's had to help them pull that out of themselves and be like, no, that's who you're created to be. So I wonder yeah. if that's maybe where mm-hmm. he's thinking, like, it's tough to be a woman in an eight because we're not taught as women, you know, that we're allowed to be that, yeah. that much, that aggressive, I guess. I don't like the word aggressive, but yeah, you know what I'm, well, I'm trying to say? Know- there have been so many instances throughout my entire life, like going back to childhood and, you know, high school, college, whatever, where I have like, one of the things that I have told myself and have probably even said out loud to people before is like, and, and with some shame, I would say is like, I'm more of like a man. Like mm-hmm. I, it confused me because I felt like some way in the world, like I, I always kind of identified as like, I, I never felt like I quite fit the, fit that mode of like what a woman is, you know, supposed to act like or be, or, you know, whatever the case may mm-hmm. be. I felt like my mind, you know, the way I think, the way my heart feels, um, the way I do or do not show emotion or vulnerability or all these things. I always felt like it was more of a man sort of mm-hmm. thing. And I did not know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And so the Enneagram comes along. And I think that is where, you know, we could just go a hundred different directions with this, but you know, <laughs> with, with the way, especially Christians, like gender, genderized things or like gender roles or stereotypes or all of these, like, you know, boxes that we try to put people in. Now I was able to say for me, like, okay, so I'm not a, I'm not a dude. I'm an Enneagram eight. Yeah. And this is just, you know, this is a different kind of strength. We all kind of have these different areas of strength and mine just shows up in ways that are more, um, related to what we think of as like, you know, masculine, I think. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I okay. love, I love that because we need all of the numbers, right? Like I can't yeah. fight for injustice. Right. You fight for injustice because it's not how I'm wired, but I can do yeah. other things, you know, that maybe an Enneagram eight isn't accustomed to, or isn't built to do. So I love that. And it's yeah. like you stepped into that and it's like, no, that's what I was. That's, this is how I'm designed and how I'm right. created to be. So that's, that's, that's neat. <laughs> 
Yeah. My husband is a six. Yeah. Corey's a six. So that's been, it's been super helpful for us just as a couple mm-hmm. to figure out like 20 years in, it's really nice <laughs> to, be able to figure out kind of how we're both wired and, and what to do with that information. It's helpful. We always say that we wish that we knew everybody that we came in contact with what their number was. Yeah. <laughs> if they could just wear right. it, that would be really helpful. Yeah. Right. It's so true. Oh and anybody God. who's not into the Enneagram is like, what in the world? <laughs> I know. Stop it. <laughs> but know. you just gotta, you gotta take the plunge. Yes. You too. Yes. Well, as we kind of wrap up, um, I kind of love to know, we, we tend to end asking different questions like this. What are you reading right now? What books are you kind of living for right now? I am just, I've got one chapter left of a book that I am absolutely loving. And it's called The Church Forsaken by Jonathan Brooks. He is an African-American pastor living in um, a, you know, marginalized, I guess, or lower income, beleaguered, I don't know, like living in a harder context in Chicago. Um, And it's, for anybody, I mean, I'm not done with it yet, so I haven't really made a big to-do about it yet, but I plan to because I've loved this book. I love that it, you know, I'm trying very intentionally to read authors of color mm. primarily right now. Um, and so I, anybody who loved the Ministry of Ordinary Places, this is a really ideal next read mm. because it's just, and I'm, I'm struck by, I, I don't know him, but I sent him a DM on Instagram and was like, this book is fantastic. And it is so parallel to the book that I just wrote. It's so parallel. And so that's comforting in some ways to see like, it's always interesting to see God moving different hearts in a similar direction. And so I see that so much. So that's a book that I cannot recommend enough. Um, And then I also just finished a book called Drop the Stones by Carlos Rodriguez. It's fantastic. I loved it. It's a quick, it's got really short chapters. He's an excellent follow on Twitter as well. Just a really, um, he's Puerto Rican and just has a very prophetic voice. He's so, if you're on Twitter, you've got to follow him. (laughs) And, and I think on Twitter, his name is happy sonship. It's a different sort of name, but you can find him. Um, yeah, those are the two most recent, but I'm always reading. I'm, I'm reading a couple of books right now for um, endorsement. That's like one of my jobs is that I get to read sometimes as work, like it counts How as work. <laughs> so there's a book that's coming out. I'm just going to plug it now. I'm so, I basically like begged for, I begged to endorse this book. And so I'm starting to read it now and it's so good. It's called We Will Feast mm-hmm. and it's by Kendall Vanderslice. And she's also, I know her from Twitter, but it's all about this idea of, you know, it's, it's kind of, t- I'm not very far into it, but it's tying together, um, you know, the kingdom of God and communion and eating together. Hmm. And I'm such a foodie and food is very central to my life. I love to cook. So she's writing about food and Jesus at the same time. And I'm here for it. <laughs> so it doesn't come out for a while, but be looking for that one. I'm excited about it. Mm, that sounds good. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us and chat with us about all the things. We appreciate it, all of your time. It truly has been so fun to actually talk with you um, after feeling like I know you from reading your books. (laughs) Um, To be able to have a conversation has just been fantastic. And I wanted to mention real quick, I know that you're doing um, a sort of online book club too through Facebook. Um, yep. I happened to see a little bit last night when you had Becca on, who you mentioned see earlier. So yes. I got to actually see her and hear a little bit that of was fun. great wisdom. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to let people know that, you know, that, yep. that those videos are going to stay on Facebook. Even they are. Them live. They're going to stay there. And we've got a few weeks to go yet. And I'm still, I'm going to have some more fun guests. But yeah, you know, if you've read the book or you're reading the book or you're interested, you'll see some familiar people mm-hmm. from the book. And it's just, it's been really fun to, to start diving in. So that's over on my Facebook page, Shannon Martin writes, and then on Twitter and Instagram, Shannon writes, I'm on, I'm on both of them most days. 
I'm easy yes. to find. <laughs> and, and you blog. I get all of your blogs and I, I do. I love all of yes. them. So sign yes, up for that you. too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You guys are awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much again. We really appreciated our time. Yes, my pleasure. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want quotes from each episode or want to find and reach out to the awesome people interviewed, please find us on Instagram under at Tales of Moxie and follow us for all the details and for info on who will be on the show in the weeks to come. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at talesofmoxie at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.